Welcome back. You're listening to Jason Lee Willis's Bible study series, Examining Moses. Today's episode, The Blood Lickers. Time to celebrate. Time to sing. After a terrible season of plagues, a strange trip on the roundabout, and the crossing of the Red Sea, the Hebrews have had quite an emotional ordeal. Standing upon the shores of the sea, a Hebrew horde listens as first Moses and then Miriam sing a song of praise. In this celebration, Moses gives a little regional context to what happened. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 15, verse 12. Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people, which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold of, on the inhabitants of Palestinia. Then the dukes of Edom shall be amazed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold upon them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm they shall be as still as a stone. Till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. Wow, Red Sea. Dang, our enemies will freak out. Yay, soon we'll get to go to the promised land. For Moses and most of the Hebrews, they would not be entering into the promised land. In fact, it would be another 40 years until Joshua and the new kids on the block, uh, wilderness, uh, would cross over as Moses assumed. However, this passage of the song brings up an interesting thought. What were the enemies expecting? Prior to this, Egypt was the uncontested military might in the world. The Theban era of Dynasty 18 took the resources of Egypt a coalition of nations, be that Hebrew or Nubian, and the technology of the Hyksos to create an empire second to none. Yet, within this nation, civil war threatened to split it apart. First, it seemed the Deltan versus Theban royalty would destroy it from within. And then later, the last connection to Nefertiti returns to stoke rebellion again. Even though Moses waged a supernatural battle with Ginger Manius, otherwise known as Ramses the Great, news would have traveled to nearby enemies. The enemies listed were Edom, Moab, and Canaan. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, who lived in the extreme southern wilderness of Israel. For them, they would have seen the Hebrew horde as a threat as it came out of the Sinai Peninsula, since they lived south of the Dead Sea and north of Aqaba, you know, the right finger of the Red Sea. While Moses could have taken the two other highways to get to Canaan, the roundabout path certainly would have freaked them out, knowing the Hebrews would now pass through their territory. Their concern would work with either the Great Bitter Lake theory or the actual Red Sea crossing. The second enemy was Moab. Okay, cover the kids' ears. Moab is the incest baby of Lot and his daughter. 
these inbred hillbillies lived along the eastern shore of the Dead Sea. What is strange about the reference to Moab is that they should not have been concerned. If the Hebrews crossed the Great Bitter Lake, or even an arm of the Suez, they were not in the path of the Hebrew horde. If Mount Horeb is indeed where most scholars put it, Jabal el Musa at St. Catharines, you know, in the Sinai Peninsula, then the route would never have put them into danger or threat. The only way they would be concerned is if the Hebrews were in Arabia. For then, the horde would come out of the desert and into their territory from the southeast. Curious, huh? Of course, the primary enemy is the Canaanites, for good reason. Whether the Hebrews come from the King's Highway, the peninsula, or from the deserts of Arabia, their goal was clear, regain Canaan. Ginger Manius would have loved this. He'd let Moses fight the Canaanites and then come in with his own army to defeat whoever was left. Instead, roundabout. And Egypt lost its most advanced weapon, its chariot army. The enemies of Egypt would have heard about this disaster for Gingermanius, who now would have to defend his nation from these three enemies while Moses vanished into the wilderness of Arabia. And sure enough, during the 40 years of Hebrew Bible camp, Ramses the Great fights Moab and writes about it on a monument at Luxor. To get to Moab, he'd have to go through Sinai and Edom. Yet, there is no mention of this during the 40 years. Why? I believe the Hebrews were somewhere in Arabia, away from this mess. Things move at a pretty quick pace at this time. Within the first three months of the Exodus, quite a few things happen. Within the first month, they took the roundabout way and crossed the Red Sea. By the 15th day of the second month, they'd received the sweet waters, manna, quail, and then some more manna. By the time they reached the third month, they'd had water from a rock, met father-in-law Jethro Ruel, saw Zipporah and her sons return to Midian, and reached the mountain. That was a lot of stuff to happen. Sandwiched by those events is one of the strangest encounters of the entire Exodus. The war with Amalek. Why attack? With references to Moab, Edom, and Canaan, it initially reads like the Amalekites are just another nation in their way. However, the archaeology of the Sinai Peninsula and during most of that time, it belonged to Egypt. Thus, the Amalekites not naturally found in the Sinai Peninsula. If they invaded, then Egypt would be concerned also. To get to the Hebrews in the Sinai Peninsula, they'd have to come through Moab and Edom, which does not seem to be the case. Also, remember that Moses is in his second home, Midian where there are Midianites. So Amalek does not belong anywhere near the peninsula or along the coast of the Red Sea. So why were they even there? Why pick a fight with the Hebrews 
when there is no threat or practical way to reach them. It is a strange motivation. We'll talk about the battle in a bit. But for now, remember that there are 600,000 Hebrew men. And Moses needed a supernatural boost to win. What gives? Where did so many Amalekites come from? How did they know where the Hebrews would be? Only God knew that the roundabout plan involved crossing the Red Sea. And the Hebrews were camped in a place without food or water, which meant no neighbors, right? How did they know where the Hebrews were camped? Who was Amalek? Buckle up. Usually, looking up the meaning of Hebrew words prompts yawning, but this word was loaded with amazingly strange possibilities. With any word, see my episode on Belial, the variation of emphasis or values can change its meaning. So we'll talk about all the possibilities. Possibility 1. Dweller in the valley. Again, Moses approaches Midian, where there is a mountain and thus a valley. However, his in-laws live in the valley of the mountain, meaning the Amalekites had to come from another mountain and another valley, which Arabia seems to lack. Sand, yes. Lots of valleys, uh, not so much. Possibility two, warlike. Okay, this one is pretty obvious, but in order to have an army, you have to be able to supply it. Moses needed quail, manna, and a watering rock to supply his people, who thought they were going to die, even with God. How did the warlike army of Amalek get supplies? Possibility three, people of prey. Now that's P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A. They're not religious. You know, that's cool, huh? Uh, Their name essentially means bad guys. Possibility four, cave people. What? Wait, like the troglodytes? This option kind of confused me a bit since Jethro has this connection according to Josephus. Uh, I would have to flip everything I thought about the troglodytes and turn them into monsters. Uh, But I do think Jethro along with being descendants of Abraham, limits this possibility. Hanging out in cave is pretty shady, though. Possibility five. People who lick blood. Seriously, a common rabbinical translation is that Amalek means people who lick blood. Wonder why God gets so specific about blood in the book of Leviticus? What does that imply, though? While the most extreme option crossed my mind, blood, cave, vampire, it could also range from cannibalism to simply preferring their T-bones a little rare. How villainous would the blood lickers be? Apparently, yep. Josephus talked about a malik and used the term bastards to describe them which means we're right back to them being bad guys. However, I'd like to remind the listener of an extreme option. 
When I read the Book of Enoch, the giants of Genesis 6 were called either biters or bastards, depending on the translation. Could Amalek have a connection to the giants? Well, the Arabian word Imlek is singular for giant. And considering where I think this story is taking place, and where it is heading, see episode 5, I think there is something very odd about this encounter. The Battle So after crossing the Red Sea, running out of food and water, and not yet to the mountain, a mallet comes out of the blue to challenge the Hebrews. Here's how it goes. Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and defeated him. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua discomforted Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this down, or write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and called the name of it Jehovah-Sini. And he said, Because the Lord hath sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So, paraphrase. Moses used a paranormal technique involving a golden staff to defeat Amalek and his people. And onto the mountain. Okay, hold on a bit. What is going on in this battle? An army of 600,000 Hebrews is losing to Amalek? In fact, it takes another miracle for the Hebrews to win. Now, I looked up Rephidim, or Rephidim which does not have any archaeological support for a specific location. I'll just let it go. But while I'm looking up the word, I stumbled across the Hebrew word for attacked. Wehilahim. Wehilahim. Okay, what does the word mean? To feed on, to consume, to battle. Yikes. The blood lickers were feeding on them? Holy cow. Oh, um, I'm sorry. Too soon. Bail pun. I keep coming back to the worst definition possible, don't I? Hyperbole. It must be an exaggeration. Luckily, God helps Moses win, and the Hebrews defeat Amalek. How many Hebrews died? Not sure. How many men did Amalek lose? Not sure. Did Joshua put Amalek to the sword? Also, not clear. One thing that is clear is that Amalek will be back. Because God said so. 
Look closely at what God said, and it might leave you chilled. After making an altar to the victory, Moses explains what God said. I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And later, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. How do you put out remembrance? Under heaven? God must not like this Amalek, for he continues to say he will make war with Amalek from generation to generation. Considering archaeologists still don't know who these guys were at the time, nor do we see them become a great enemy like Babylon or Rome later, Amalek does not do his part with the war. Yet there is a promise from God, Amalek will be back. From generation to generation. Strangely, the account in Exodus 17 seems to indicate a person, Amalek. This is fine in just the context of this battle, but given the context of God waging war with him from generation to generation, I need a bit of context. Genesis chapter 14 verse 7 makes a reference to the Amalek land of the Amalekites. Yes, this is the section where the coalition of kings are fighting giants before turning at each other in a war that claims Lot is a prisoner. Chronologically, this would have been several hundred years earlier. Does this mean Amalek was alive then? Or, since Moses wrote Genesis, it is just an anachronistic reference, like Ramses. A few generations later, Esau's grandson is named Amalek, which is why many scholars claim they are the same. The math would make our Amalek over 500 years old, which is quite strange. Is he an immortal? According to Nak. Manades, Esau is actually named after a previous Amalek, which is like a Viking naming his son Thor. Folks knew of Amalek from lore. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 45, the Amalekites and Canaanites joined forces to attack the Hebrews who defied their time out. This happened right after the spies returned with tales of giants. And upon refusing to trust God's plan, the rebellious Hebrews were told it would be another 40 years before God would deliver Canaan to them. Actually, just their kids. So some bold Hebrews decided to invade without God's help, only to be killed by the Amalekites, who were in Canaan now? By the time we get to Numbers chapter 24, verse 20, it seems the 40-year time out is almost over, and the exile is nearing the end of the 40 years. Here, the prophet Balaam brings up that, quote, Amalek was the first of all nations, and shall be last until he perishes. What? How can Amalek possibly be considered the first nation? Heck, Nimrod should be the first nation post-flood. 
does that mean Amalek predates Nimrod? And how is Amalek going to be the last nation? Look at the world today. Any mention of Amalek? What is going on with this chapter? Amalek does not go away. And Saul must face him in 1 Samuel chapter 15. When he spares King Agog, Saul loses favor with God. This is the reason why God turns to David. How badly does God want Amalek wiped out? He's serious. But why? Theories on Amalek. The theories vary widely. I read one theory that claims that Haman from the Book of Esther was an Amalekite, and thus the war continued from generation to generation. Another theory believed that Sennacherib assimilated the Amalekites into the Babylonian-Persian bloodlines. During the Armenian Genocide, the Amalek prophecy was used as an excuse to kill them all. Jewish tradition explains that organized atheism is the proper way to interpret our war with Amalek. I even came across the theory, based on some loose language, that connected Amalek to Lamech, you know, the guy from Genesis. I guess this would make the city builder the first nation, and his bloodline, carrying Cain's DNA, is why we still have bad guys. So I offer the Willis theory, knowing there is not much consensus on crazy. Take a look at Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. It says, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year, for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them having breastplates of fire, jacinth, and brimstone, and the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire, and smoke, and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which issued out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them they do hurt. Okay. Who are the four angels buried under the Euphrates? Why? are the four angels buried under the Euphrates? In my Drax voice, what are the four angels buried under the Euphrates? <laughs> I know. Uh, considering that for giants to exist, you seem to need a fallen angel. The offspring of a fallen angel and human host are bastards and or biters. What if Amalek once was an angel? During the Great Flood... According to the Book of Enoch, 
the bad guys were thrown into the abyss. Yet Satan and others were not locked up. Evil continued to exist. The Hyksos people, after a brutal defeat to the Egyptian coalition, retreat to the promised land and regroup. Their plan? Enlist help. And the answer to their dark prayers is Amalek. Amalek and his monster babies come out of the desert to ambush Moses, who needs to use supernatural efforts to defeat a supernatural force looking to devour them. When over, God promises that the war is not over. Why? Because when the pillar of fire precedes the Ark of the Covenant on year one of the Joshua regime, the four fallen angels, most likely including Amalek, are locked up in a prison under the Euphrates. Just as Balaam predicted, Amalek will not perish until the War of Armageddon. He, his release happens in Revelation 9. From Joshua to King Saul, God tries to purge the foul abominations from humanity in a war that sounds like genocide, yet is far darker. The Canaanites somehow survive, and the war with Amalek goes on for generation to generation. It's an epic theory, at least. I hope you've enjoyed episode 10 of Examining Moses by Jason Lee Willis. Check out my website or Facebook page, Jason Lee Willis Novels, for ordering the book or for more audio podcasts. The music you've been listening to today was provided by YouTube's audio library. Until next time...